Welcome to the Thinking Faith Podcast, a collection of talks and Q&A that address the big questions we're all asking about God, life and purpose. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for that kind introduction. Uh, it's so great to be back at Hope Church uh, and to see you all again. Um, such a blessing to be with you. Uh, thank you for joining. Thank you for joining virtually online if you're, if you're watching uh, over, over the web. It's great to have you with us as well. As, as you can hear, both from my introduction and my accent, uh, I'm Australian. I'm an Australian citizen. And in Australia, many of you know lots about Australia. I know you travel there. You probably have friends and family there. Uh, many of you may have even lived there at some point. Uh, but one thing about Australia that we all know is that we have a lot of crazy animals in Australia. Spiders and snakes and sharks and absolutely everything we have in Australia. In fact, some people say all the scary animals on land will chase you into the ocean and then all the sharks will chase you back onto the land. And that's why we spend so much time on the beach because it's between the two. But probably the most ridiculous looking animal in Australia is the platypus. I assume everyone knows what a platypus is. It's basically a cross between a duck and an otter. And if you hadn't actually seen one, you would think that someone was just making it up when they explained what a platypus was. And it's interesting that that's our reaction even now, because when the platypus was first discovered when Australia was colonized a couple of hundred years ago, the biologists and zoologists were sending reports back to the United Kingdom that they had found this new animal that no one had ever seen before. And they were drawing sketches of it and describing what it was. And no one in Europe or the United States believed that these guys were telling the truth. No one believed that this animal existed. Because up until that point, everyone thought that birds were the only creatures with bills, like ducks. And so it was impossible for any animal that was not a bird to have a duck bill. But the platypus has a duck bill. And then they thought, up until that point, that the only animals to lay eggs were reptiles and birds. And the platypus is not a reptile or a bird. It's a mammal. And ma mammals don't lay eggs. That was what was thought at the time. It was, it was impossible for any mammal to lay eggs. But the platypus is a mammal and it does lay eggs. And so it actually took a long time, a lot of correspondence. In the end, it actually took the dead body of a platypus to be sent across and verified. Overwhelming evidence was needed for people to actually accept this previously unthinkable and impossible creature, this unthinkable and impossible reality, that there was this ridiculous-looking mammal that laid eggs, that had the beak of a, a duck, that had the body of an otter, it took overwhelming evidence and a long, long time because people thought it was impossible. Now, today, whenever we hear something that we consider to be unbelievable, we take a similar instinct. We think to ourselves, it's impossible. And it doesn't really matter when it's something as trivial as the platypus. Who really cares whether it exists or not? But with something as central, not just to human history, but to your life and my life as the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it matters a great deal. Because if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, it changes everything. There is no way that can be true and we can all just walk out of here saying that doesn't matter to me, that doesn't apply to me. Now, each of us here I know, everyone listening and watching, is in a different place in your walk with God. 
Some of you are walking with him. Some of you are struggling with him. Some of you are wrestling with him. Some of you are dealing with suffering, even though you are walking with God. Some of you are in outright rejection of God and who he is and don't even care. You might have just been dragged here by a well-meaning friend of yours. What I want to say to you today before I share what I'm going to share is wherever you are on that spectrum, in your search for God, in your rejection of God, in your walk with God, this is relevant to you. Whether or not Jesus Christ did actually rise from the dead. And I want to talk about this in the context of three broad categories. The first is the possibility of impossibilities. The second is the historical evidence. And the third are the minimal facts, and I'm going to explain what that actually means. The possibility of impossibilities, the historical evidence, and the minimal facts. The possibility of impossibilities. Now, getting back to the platypus, getting back to disbelief, there is a very natural human instinct whenever someone tells us something that seems outlandish, that seems out of the ordinary, that doesn't fit with our understanding of reality, for us to disbelieve it and to say that is impossible. A good example, if I was to tell you here now, what are the odds, what are the possibilities of me just levitating and floating up to the balcony in front of all of you right now? All of you would say, as I would too, that that's impossible. It's just not going to happen. Now, why do you draw that conclusion? Most of you I've never met before. You don't know if I have the capacity to fly or not. You say that because in your experience, in your understanding of physics, in your lived experience of experiencing the constancy and unchanging nature of gravity and how it works, in your understanding that generally speaking, when people fly, they need aeroplanes or gliders or rockets or some kind of aid, you make a decision and an inference that me flying up to the top of the balcony is impossible. And in my view, I would agree with you, it's a pretty good inference. So the human instinct to make judgments on what's possible and what's not is not a problem. The problem is if we think that our instincts of determining what's impossible are objective, when they are necessarily subjective. Because your judgment and my judgment on what's possible and what's not is based, for all of us, it's based on what we know, what we've experienced, what we think and what we feel and what we have felt. So it all is necessarily subjective. Most of the time we're probably right, but we have to be very careful because we are not qualified to make sweeping statements about what's possible and what's not possible on the big, big questions. Put simply, because we don't know everything, we haven't experienced everything, our understanding of our universe, of ourselves, is not exhaustive. And so because we don't have exhaustive knowledge and understanding of absolutely everything, it's both intellectually a little bit stupid, but also intellectually very arrogant for us to think that we can decide what's possible and what's not possible. So how do we think through this then? How do we make sense of how we can make reasonable inferences and, and have reasonable justification when people make ridiculous claims like someone 2,000 years ago rose from the dead? How do we make sense of that? I want to talk about two brief things. One is the nature of science and the other are the thresholds of law. Now, 
One of the reasons why we all struggle and people struggle with the resurrection of Jesus is because it seems to fly in the face of our understanding of the physical sciences, certainly the biological sciences. Generally speaking, when people die, they stay dead. Okay? Now, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, but I can say that from my experience and my limited understanding of the medical profession. When people die, they stay dead. So if someone comes to me and says that someone has risen from the dead, that seems to fly in the face of science. The question then becomes, does that mean that a claim that someone has risen from the dead is necessarily and definitely impossible? No, it doesn't. And here is why. To say that the only way to finding truth is through the physical sciences, the only way to finding truth is through the natural physical sciences, is a failed statement. And here are a couple of reasons why. The physical, natural sciences, whether it's physics or chemistry or biology, whatever it might be, they are exclusively focused on understanding, observing, cataloging, and explaining the natural, physical world and universe. Any good scientist will tell you that, no matter what they believe. Physical sciences, natural sciences, are called physical sciences because they deal exclusively with the physical. Therefore, Anything outside of the physical, the physical sciences that we have, are by definition not qualified or designed to understand or even try to explain. And good scientists will tell you that that is why you cannot prove or disprove the existence of God. You cannot prove or disprove miracles. You cannot prove or disprove the resurrection of Jesus, using the physical sciences exclusively because they are concerned with the physical and God, if he exists, exists primarily in the metaphysical, in the supernatural. So we see that we have to go beyond science to understand all of reality. And we know that very simply because this idea that some atheists have, which is called scientism, it's not being a scientist, it goes far further than that. Scientism is the idea that the only way to know truth is through the natural sciences. The problem with that sentence is that you can't test that sentence using the natural sciences. I'm just going to repeat that. Scientism is the idea that the only way to knowing reality and knowing truth is through the physical, natural sciences. That's the only way. The problem is that sentence cannot be known or tested using the physical, natural sciences. So we know it's not true. We know by definition, just using the principles of logic, that ultimate reality has to include something that goes beyond the physical and natural sciences. Now, for those of you, if you go to the beach, if you're at Sentosa, you might see occasionally, I've only seen it I think once in Singapore in the three years I've lived here, someone with a metal detector. You know, you can buy these metal detectors, I assume on Amazon or Lazada, and I think they're just looking for gold, they're looking for some kind of treasure, something that might be worth something under the, under the sand or in the ground. And those metal detectors, metal detectors are designed, as they're named, to detect metal. Now, it doesn't matter how much you look with one of those and how determined you are and how good your metal detector is, you will not find cheeseburgers using a metal detector. Because metal detectors are not designed to find cheeseburgers. It's not within the scope of their purpose. It's not what they're built for. In the same way, the physical sciences are not designed to find or unfind God. You can't exhaustively prove or disprove his existence. It might be able to help, but it's just not what they are designed for. 
So we know straight away then that the idea that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is impossible because it defies the principles of the natural sciences of medicine and biology and chemistry, we know that argument doesn't hold. We know that argument doesn't hold because the Bible doesn't claim that Jesus rose in keeping completely with the natural laws. There was a supernatural intervention. That's what miracles are. It's a supernatural intervention in the natural workings of our universe. That's what happened. So that's thinking about it in a scientific sense. What about in a legal sense? Now, this is when, as a lawyer, things become very, very clear to me and quite exciting, actually, as well. Because in law, there are lots of intrinsically improbable things. In fact, that's why we have a legal system, because the way the evidence looks at first instance isn't always the way the truth plays out. So that's why we have a legal system, to look at whether or not these seeming improbabilities are in fact not true, or whether they actually are true. How do you reverse an intrinsic improbability in the law, in our real life out there? You reverse an intrinsic improbability by overwhelming surrounding evidence. And it has to be overwhelming, it's got to be significant because we're starting from a place where something is not really possible, not really probable. And so for there to be any kind of shift to allow a belief in that thing, it's got to be overwhelming. Now, let me give you a good example of how this can work. Let's say I was driving here today and I arrived here and I said to you guys, you know, on my way here, I saw a 300-pound tiger on Orchard Road. And you all thought, okay, this Australian is clearly either crazy or he's drunk or he doesn't know what a tiger is or maybe he was at the zoo this morning and then he fell asleep and then he just woke up here, a taxi or a grab brought him. There's clearly some better explanation for this. He can't have seen a tiger. But then let's say that we were just hanging out here and we turned on Channel News Asia and suddenly they started reporting that other people had been calling in, reporting sightings of a tiger near the orchard and southern orchard areas. Then let's say that it started hitting some of the websites. South China Morning Post is reporting it. The Straits Times is reporting that other people have seen this too. Then a few minutes later, Singapore Zoo puts out a media release saying that they were expecting the arrival of two adult Bengal tigers from India and that the plane arrived on time, but between Changi Airport, courier terminal, and Singapore Zoo, something happened, and when the truck, the courier truck, arrived at Singapore Zoo, the cage was open, and only one tiger remained inside of the two. Now, have we conclusively proven that I definitely was telling the truth, that there was a Bengal tiger on Orchard Road? No, we haven't. But what we have is increasing amounts of circular evidence, surrounding evidence, that begins to reverse the improbability that we first thought. Is it highly, highly improbable that there is a Bengal tiger on Orchard Road right now? Yes, it is. Of course it is. But in that hypothetical I just ran with you, once all of this evidence around it starts to come in, we've got to start thinking, maybe there is enough evidence for us to rethink the intrinsic improbability. You can reverse an intrinsic improbability if there is sufficient evidence. So let me move on then to my second point, talk about the historical evidence 
for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because I think it's fine to be at a starting point where it's highly, highly improbable, if not impossible, that someone rises from the dead. That just doesn't happen. There has to be a better explanation, surely. Only if there isn't a circular, overwhelming evidence around it. So what about the historical evidence? Now, one of the worst answers that a Christian can give, and I'm really sorry if anyone has ever given you this answer, to a question about why do you believe this or this or this to do with the Christian message. And then the answer that sometimes we give, and I I admit I've given it a couple of times, I, I don't give it anymore, but I have done in the past. It's the worst answer a Christian can give. Because the Bible says so. Please don't give that answer if you're a Christian in the room. It's the worst possible answer you can give. And you know why it's the worst possible answer you can give? One is it's a little bit arrogant, but the more important reason is it's actually quite stupid and illogical. Because the reason they are asking you the question is because they probably don't accept the credibility of your Bible. That's why they're asking it. And you are pointing to a source, you're using a frame of reference that they do not accept. So it makes no sense to say because the Bible says so. What we actually have to do before we use a source, and I agree that as a follower of Jesus, the Bible is our source. It is our objective frame of reference. It is the anchor point. But for me to use that, I first need to establish that it is credible as a source. Then I can point to it. So the historical evidence needs to begin, I think, with the Bible. And specifically, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, with the four biographies we have of Jesus that are in the Bible. Now, those four biographies are by four different authors, written at different times, but they take in eyewitness accounts from many, many more people than just those four authors. Multiple sources, multiple eyewitness accounts. And each of them has the accounts for the resurrection of Jesus. So let's check them out and see if they are credible or not. Because many people believe in the Christian message, which includes the resurrection of Jesus, and many people don't. And many people that don't have various questions and reasons for why they don't. And all those questions and reasons are valid. But if we can establish that the resurrection of Jesus Christ occurred, that's the whole ballgame. That's the end of the game. It's not that other questions aren't relevant, but no other question can be a barrier to belief in the Christian message and belief in Jesus Christ if we can establish this one thing, the resurrection. That's why this is such an important question to ask. Did he really rise from the dead? Now, when historical scholars are trying to evaluate whether or not a historical document is credible, they use, they use a number of different tests. I'm just going to share one of the things that they use. It's called textual criticism. And all it means is they look at how many of the earliest copies have you got so we can cross-reference them and cross-check them against each other. And then they ask, how close to the events being written about were these early copies written? And the reason that's important is because if I asked each of you what you had for lunch today, most of you would be pretty accurate in being able to write down for me what you had for lunch. But if I asked each of you what you had for lunch last year on August 24th, you would, you would be much less accurate. You'd be much less accurate. So the amount of copies matters because it helps us cross-check whether or not they've been changed, but also the time between when the events actually occurred and the accounts were written also matters. So let me give you a couple of examples. There's an old Greek philosopher called Plato. Everyone accepts that Plato existed. Everyone accepts what he has written. 
We have seven of the earliest completed copies of what Plato wrote, seven early manuscripts of what he wrote, completed. Now, seven's not a lot, but it's enough to cross-check because if they all check out with each other, we know that you know, no one's been messing with it in between. If there's one that is completely different to the other six, then we know what the, what the original text actually was. So seven is enough to cross-reference and verify. From when Plato first wrote them, these copies can be dated about 900 years later. But that's considered to be enough by historians and scholars. There's another ancient Greek writer called Homer, not Homer Simpson, another Homer. He wrote stuff like the Odyssey and the Iliad and a bunch of other stuff. A great writer. For him, there, is much, there are many, many more. For Homer's works, there are 643 copies. 643 complete copies of the early manuscripts of what Homer wrote. And the earliest ones of those are dated to within 500 years of when they were first written. So 100 times the copies and half the time has lapsed from Plato. And obviously, there's no question at all about Homer's existence or what he wrote. If we look then at the New Testament of the Christian Bible, there are more than 5,800 copies of the New Testament in the Greek alone let alone all of the other languages that they have it in, the, the Latin and the Syriac and the Aramaic and so forth. 5,800 in the Greek alone, some of them are dated to within a few decades of the resurrection of Jesus. A few decades of the resurrection of Jesus. To the point that one of the former directors of the British National Museum, who is an atheist, said this, the New Testament of the Christian Bible is the most historically verifiable document in all of ancient history. An atheist said that, a historian. There's another little thing to throw in on this, which I find astounding, just as a lawyer and as a Christian. There is one particular verse or passage in one of the letters that Paul writes that's in the New Testament. It's the first letter to the Corinthian church, and it's in chapter 15. And in chapter 15, Paul plagiarizes something, and he's very upfront about it. He says, there's a creed that has been used by the early church, and I'm taking this creed and putting it in my letter. And it's a beautiful kind of summary of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it says that Jesus was born here, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he died by crucifixion, that he rose from the dead, that he appeared to the 12 disciples. And then it says, and then Paul says, and then he appeared to many, many others. Hundreds, it says. That particular creed was not written by Paul. He just copied it in. He just control C, control V'd it into his letter to the Corinthians. It's a creed that was being used by the very early church. And the reason we know this now is because recent archaeological findings have found fragments of that creed that can be dated back to within two years. Some scholars say 18 months of the resurrection of Jesus. So there are people who would have seen him die and seen him alive again afterwards that were proclaiming him as Lord, proclaiming him as God through this creed within 18 months of his resurrection. So all this nonsense that's out there that, oh, Jesus was just a nice guy, and then 400 years later, someone had an idea to invent this religion and make him God, it's all nonsense because people were worshipping him as God within 18 months of his resurrection. The evidence is right there. 
There's many, many more examples like that. I don't have time, unfortunately, to go into all of them. But the historical evidence is clear that the biographical accounts of Jesus, including multiple eyewitness testimony, when you carbon date it, when you look at the anthropology, the archaeology, and the textual evidence, it shows us that this resurrection is accounted for accurately, just like it is in the New Testament scriptures. So the historical evidence is there. The third and final thing I want to talk through, and I want to spend a little bit more time on this, are the minimal facts. Now, this minimal facts approach was really pioneered. A lot of scholars and experts were involved in this, but it was brought together really helpfully by two guys, a guy called Mike Lacona and Gary Habermas. Now, both of these guys are Christian, but they use a lot of academic sources who are not Christian. And their idea was this, and it's kind of a Sherlock Holmes type approach. Sherlock Holmes famously said that when you have any set of facts, first of all, you have to establish what the agreed facts are. And as a lawyer, this is what we used to do. You, you, agree, you work out what everyone agrees on as the facts, and then you try and explain those facts. You need an explanation that makes sense of the facts that everyone agrees on. And then he says you have to test each of those explanations because different people are going to have different explanations. In the law, both sides are going to have a different explanation to make sense of these facts. And then the Sherlock Holmes approach, which is the approach that we all use, directly or indirectly, is whenever an explanation of those minimal facts is not credible or it's disprovable, you have to eliminate it and go to the next one. And when you've eliminated all of the non-credible, disprovable theories, the one that is left is the truth, however ridiculous it might seem, however unbelievable it might seem. If you can't explain it away as not credible, then that's the truth. And so that's what Lacona and Habermas did. They got a whole bunch of historical scholars together, Christians and non-Christians, atheists, secularists, agnostics, everyone, and they said, all right, as historians, what are the minimal facts that you all agree on that happened around the life, death, and alleged resurrection of Jesus? And I think they came up with six. I'm only going to share three of them with you, because as a lawyer, I think you only need three to make the case. I only needed three to give my life to Jesus, so I'm just going to share those three with you. The three, thing, three of the six things that they all agreed on, both the Christians and the non-Christian experts, were that, and they used biblical evidence, non-biblical evidence, historical evidence, etc. They said, this person, Jesus Christ, he was crucified by the Roman Empire. He was crucified and died at the hands of the Roman Empire. Minimal fact number one. Minimal fact number two. His disciples genuinely believed that they encountered the risen Jesus Christ three days after and for a, a number of days subsequent to that. So he was crucified and died. His disciples genuinely believed that he had risen from the dead. And number three, his followers, the group that be became known as his followers, which we are still known as, as the church, it grew exponentially, especially for the next 300 to 400 years after his alleged resurrection. Okay, so those are three minimal facts. He was crucified and died. His disciples believed that he rose from the dead and his church grew exponentially in the 400 years after. Now, how do we make sense of these three things? And there are three more, but we're not going to go there. These three do the, get the job done in my view. How do we make sense of these? And there were three alternative theories that people had come up with. 
to explain these minimal facts. The first is the delusion theory. And this is the idea that the disciples were deluded, that they just thought that they had seen him risen from the dead. Hallucination, wishful thinking. He just appeared to them in a dream. Some early onset augmented reality. I don't know. The delusion theory, that these guys had just, maybe they were taking LSD or ecstasy, maybe they were drunk, maybe they just made it up. They wanted him to be alive so much they just imagined that he was. Now, here are the problems with the delusion theory. The first thing is that in that creed, 1 Corinthians, and according to the Gospels in general, it wasn't just the 12 disciples. It wasn't just the apostles that witnessed the resurrected Jesus. It was literally hundreds and hundreds of other people. So it wasn't just them. But even if it was just them, the problem with the delusion theory and the medical science is very clear on this and those of you here who are either psychologists, psychiatrists or neurobiologists, you will know that medically speaking and the Australian, the American Psychiatric Association has published on this, there is no such thing as group delusion. Yes, delusion is a very widely documented psychiatric phenomenon but there is no evidence in human history of group delusion. It doesn't matter what we take or what we drink or what we feel. There is no way that all of us in this room could have a, a joint group delusion of the same person being up here talking in the same way. And Jesus appeared numerous times to his disciples and to other groups of people where they all experienced him as a, a risen, resurrected person. And he was doing things that hallucinations don't do. He was eating barbecued fish with them. He was speaking with them. He was walking on the road to Emmaus with them. He was conversing with them. There is no medical or psychiatric explanation for how that could be possible if it was all a delusion. Group delusions just don't happen. There's no evidence for that. So the delusion theory is out. It's not credible. The other theory is the deception theory, that the disciples faked the whole thing. Maybe they just stole his body and then said that he had risen from the dead and then started spreading this amazing rumour. Maybe they found another guy that looked like Jesus and paraded him around a bit and then did away with him and said, oh, he's ascended now, and then they went and tried and spread the church. Now, that's not bad. That's not a bad theory. That's a compelling theory until you realise what actually happened to these disciples, to these apostles in particular. All of them, if not almost all of them, were tortured, were persecuted, were jailed, suffered, and ultimately died for this gospel that they, had, they were believing in and that they were perpetuating and proclaiming. Now, I don't know about you, but I've lied before. I've lied more times than I should have. But I would never die for something I knew to be a lie. People often will die for things or will suffer for things that they think are true, even if they're wrong. But no one would die for something that they know is a lie. No one would do that. It's not logical. Certainly not those apostles, let alone the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of other Christians around that time. This is the problem with the deception theory. The deception theory would... To accept that theory, we'd have to accept that these guys faked it, they planned the whole thing, and then they were happy to go and be tortured and died for it, even while they knew it was not true. That's just not credible. So delusion is out, deception is out. The third theory is that he never actually died, that Jesus just got very close to death on that cross. They took him down, he had a couple of days rest in the tomb, and then out he came. 
Now, once again, there's medical problems with this theory, but there's deeper political and sociological problems because of the Roman Empire and the reality of its power and its uncompromising record on crucifixions. There is no record in human history of a failed crucifixion anywhere in the Roman Empire in its history. And the reason for that is because if a crucifixion failed, the soldiers who are responsible for that crucifixion, they and their families would have been crucified publicly themselves. That was the kind of pressure they were under. That was the structural reality of how crucifixions worked politically. So there's a political issue there which automatically makes the theory pretty non-credible, especially when Jesus was so unpopular at that moment and so many people wanted him dead. It was in their interest to kill him and make sure he was dead. But the other more compelling part is that, and there are examples, and you see them in Scripture, of people's legs being broken who had been crucified just to make sure that they were actually dead. Another thing they did was they used to... thrust a spear into the side of the crucified person to make sure they were dead. Now, they did this to Jesus, right? We know it. It's in, the, it's in the eyewitness testimonies that we've had verified by the historical textual evidence. They thrust a spear into his side when they thought he was dead just to make sure. And what came out? According to the Bible, blood and water. Now, why didn't just blood come out? If you thrust a spear into here, into my side, it would just be blood. There wouldn't be a distinction between blood and water. Again, those of you who are in medicine, especially if anyone's in hematology here, we now know because of modern medicine that when someone dies, the blood and the water coagulates, it separates in the vessels. And so if you do pierce someone that is already dead, it will come out separately. Now that's a medical phenomenon that they didn't know then. That was just someone writing eyewitness testimony of what they saw. They didn't know, they weren't qualified doctors, they weren't blood specialists, they were just writing what they saw. But that's exactly what you would expect if someone was dead. There's another medical issue there that renders this theory that he wasn't really dead non-credible. The final one, which is a little more anecdotal but I think is still powerful, let's say Jesus didn't die. Even if he didn't, which... I think it's pretty clear is not possible, but let's say he didn't die. He wasn't in good shape going into that tomb. And yet, according to the eyewitness testimonies of multiple people, he was, in his resurrected form, seen talking and walking with people on the road to Emmaus for a few kilometres. And it doesn't really matter who you are, with no modern medicine, if somehow the Roman crucifixion had failed, if somehow Jesus could have faked the coagulation of the blood and the water... There's no way someone within 72 hours of going through all of that would be able to stroll five kilometres, kind of from Angmokyo down to Raffles MRT, just relaxed, chatting with two people. I can't even stroll that on a good day. The deception theory is non-credible. The delusion theory is non-credible. The idea that he wasn't really dead is non-credible. The only explanation left is that he rose from the dead. It's the only rational, logical, evidence-based theory that stands up to questioning, that explains and makes sense of the evidence that we have. Now, everything I've been talking about, and I know this is a bit different to the normal message that you guys get at church. I've been talking propositionally I've been talking about things that I believe to be true and giving you evidence. I've been making a case for you as judges. I've been the lawyer making the case. I've been giving you all of the propositional evidence that I can fit into 30 minutes 
for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I know that many of you have other questions that require propositional evidence, other questions about the message of Jesus, about what the Bible says, about things you find confusing, about suffering that you see, about suffering that you're experiencing yourself, about questions about sexuality, questions about science, questions about miracles. I know there's lots of other questions you've got. And for every question you've got, I promise you, there is propositional evidence to respond to it, just like the propositional evidence, only some of which I've shared in relation to the resurrection. But the difference between the Christian message and every other worldview is that it goes beyond propositional evidence. Propositional evidence is important because it it gives us reasons to believe, it justifies our faith, it justifies our belief. But the more powerful category of evidence is relational evidence. Relational evidence always trumps propositional evidence. I could stand here and tell you everything about my wife and tell you that I'm married. I was introduced as being married. I'm here with a ring. All of that could be fake. But these are the propositional evidences I would point to. I'd be like, hey, look, they introduced me as being married. I've got a ring. I can tell you my wife's name is Fiona. I can describe her to you. She's an Australian. She's blonde. She's about this tall. You know, she looks like this. This is her background. I could give you all the propositional evidence. I could show you her birth certificate, her NRIC card. I could do all of that. And that would go a long way to you believing that she existed. Or, next time I come and speak at Hope Church, I hope there's a next time, I could just bring her with me and introduce her to you. And you could meet her for yourself. For all of us, the propositional evidence should be and is important because it proves that our faith is real and it is grounded in evidence. It proves that the message of Jesus Christ is true. But that is not enough. That's not what the message of Jesus is actually about. He doesn't just want you to know about him. He wants us to know him. C.S. Lewis said, this God of ours, he doesn't want to be studied. He wants to be known. It's a relationship. The Christian gospel is actually not a religion. It's a relationship. It starts with an up-close and personal relationship with this Jesus. So the fact that he rose from the dead is mind-blowing and astonishing and incredible and evidence-based and real and historical. But the reason why he died and rose from the dead is even more astonishing. It's even more heart-lifting. It's grave-opening power. Why did he die and rise from the dead? He came and lived and died and rose from the dead for you. That's why he did it. The fact that he did it is impressive, and I've explained that propositionally, but the reason why he did it is relational. He did it because he wants to know you. And because of your and my imperfection and God's perfection, there was a mismatch. It wasn't possible for God to relate to us. Because we were dead to him in our sins. There needed to be a short circuit. Someone had to come and cover over us with perfection so that we could then relate to the perfect God. That's exactly what Jesus did. Someone needed to take the punishment and cover us of our imperfection, if you like. And that person needed to pass two qualification tests. First of all, they had to be human. Otherwise, it would not have been a substitute. 
all the oxes and goats and sheep and unleavened bread, all the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, they were all symbolic and as part of training the nation of Israel in obedience and in understanding the concept of this, of what was going to, of what was going to need to happen. But none of those were adequate. The sacrifice, the substitute had to be human, otherwise it wouldn't have been an adequate substitute. But it also had to be divine. It had to be God, otherwise it wouldn't have been sufficient. It had to be human or it wouldn't have been adequate. It had to be divine or it wouldn't have been sufficient. If it was just a person, then it would have just atoned for the sins of one person. And thirdly, he had to be perfect for the first two to actually fly, to cover us with that perfection. And that's exactly who Jesus was. God himself stepping into the world for you and for me, taking the punishment willingly, that you and I actually deserved. So we could then be in relationship. So then we could have the relational evidence. Most of you here probably haven't heard of any of the evidence that I talked about tonight. And yet you're in up close and personal relationship with Jesus. Your journey with him is living proof that the relational evidence is more important than the propositional evidence. I'm here to help strengthen your relational evidence because there, there are gonna be times where you don't feel him, where you're suffering, where you're struggling, where people are out there in the workplace or at university or in your friendship groups that are going to throw stones at your faith. They're going to question. They're going to interrogate. They're going to mock you. The Bible guarantees it. We are going to be mocked for believing this. We're going to be mocked for being in relationship with this Jesus. And when that happens, we can back up our relational evidence with this propositional evidence. That's why this thing called apologetics is not always fundamentally necessary, but it's always helpful. And more and more and more, it is becoming necessary out there. Because when you get out there, there is a world out there that is necessarily and instinctively hostile to the message of Jesus. So we need all the propositional evidence, all the relational evidence, all the historical evidence, all the intellectual evidence, all the emotional evidence, all the anthropological evidence, all the psychological evidence, all the experiential evidence, all the anecdotal evidence. We need all the evidence we can get. And that's what the Bible talks about when it says put on the armor of God. It's saying get all of this together. It's time to step up. We've got to get everything together because it's a battle out there. This God who came into the world to die for you and then to rise for you as well. There is propositional evidence, but more importantly, there is relational evidence. He wants to be up close and personal with you. So I'm going to just do a very short prayer to give you guys an opportunity to respond to this. Some of you here are walking with God and you can just echo this prayer to reaffirm that. Some of you have walked away from him and you might want to come back and invite him back into your life. For some of you, you might have never made this decision before in your life, but you're willing to accept this Jesus into your life now. It's relational and Jesus shoves it right in front of us in the most wonderful way when in the final book of the Bible, he says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. To anyone who answers and opens up the door, I will come in and eat with them and them with me. What's more relational than eating together? Most of us are Asian, we know. There's nothing more relational than eating together. We love doing that. That's the kind of relationship Jesus wants with you. You can sit where you are, you can just speak this softly into your face masks if you want, or you can just echo it in your mind and in your heart. But if this is you, please join me. For the rest of you, if you could please just bow your heads and, and bear with us for, for 30 seconds. Let's pray. 
Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying for me and for rising again for me. I thank you that you've given us all the evidence we need to step into relationship with you. I'm sorry I haven't always acknowledged that. And I'm sorry that too often I have been the God of my own life. I turn away from that now and I give myself back to you. Thank you for giving yourself to me. I've still got questions. I've still got uncertainties. I've still got struggles. And I'm still pretty messed up. But I want to know more of you in my life. I love you and I want to work through all of those struggles with you by my side and in my heart. Go with me out of here, Lord, and be with me always. In Jesus' name, amen.